We're on a mission from God. Wendy? So I got that going. Darling? Looks like I picked the wrong week to quit sniffing blue. Light of my life. We enjoy your films. I am a human being. I thought they smelled bad on the outside. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in real time, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Malis. And I'm Richard Wells. And today marks the 40th anniversary of the release of Herbie Goes Bananas on June 25th, 1980. It was written by Don Tate, with characters by Gordon Buford from his book Carboy Girl, directed by Vincent McAvity, and released by Buena Vista Distribution. Is that a children's book? Kind of. In uh, 1961, Gordon Buford's novel Car Boy Girl was published. And uh, lead actor at the time, Dean Jones, wanted to adapt it for film. He wanted it to be a straightforward racing movie about the first sports car. But Walt Disney himself was set on something else. The first Herbie movie was the last thing that Walt himself had a hand in developing. Starting with the title of the novel, Car Boy Girl, the film later passed through various equally bad titles, including The Magic Volksy, The Runaway Wagon, Beetle Bomb, Wonder Beetle, Bug Boom, and Thunderbug, which I actually hate the least, before settling on The Love Bug, which I hate the second least. <laughs> but it came out in 1966, two years after Walt died. So you got The Love Bug, it was the 60s. You got to do it. Uh, the first film follows what is now a well-worn trope. A magical anthropomorphic car chooses a down-on-his-luck guy, actor Dean Jones in this case, as its driver. Is it anthropomorphic? Yes, I would say it is. Uh, it tricks him into a relationship, and they beat a jerk in a race. And this is what the franchise would become about. So the first movie was just called The Love Bug. Um, and these are some notes that I made while watching it recently that reminded me of one of the sequels. Herbie spurts oil all over the foot of Peter Thorndike, played by David Tomlinson. This happens repeatedly over the course of the franchise, but the first time it happened was here in this movie. We're still talking about the first one. Yes, the love bug. Mm -hmm. 36 minutes into the movie, Thorndike says, I tell you, there's more going on here than meets the eye. Hmm. We're going to get to sequels that aren't official sequels later. The second film makes slightly less sense. The whole cast left, so we have the aunt of the driver's mechanic no, watching Herbie over Herbie. Herbie was there. <laughs> That's true. Herbie does have an IMDb page for some reason. Uh, Herbie is protecting this woman from an evil land developer played by Keenan Wynn, and he ends up being really the only interesting person in the movie. Not only does Herbie being a car play no important part in the plot because there's no racing, but uh, also random things in her house are also alive too, mm -hmm. uh, and that also plays very little part in the film do any of the movies go into any lore about no but this? i want to do that prequel where you over explain it like to death wouldn't that be great no no yeah you're right that wouldn't be good in the second movie at one point in the film keenan Wynn says that he is being driven bananas which reminded me of this film and uh, he also steals herbie at one point and brags to himself out loud about it before reminding himself except a six-year-old kid could steal this one cylinder hairdryer maybe foreshadowing of the child stealing it later uh the third film herbie goes to monte carlo goes back to the roots as dean jones returns to drive buddy hackett the first film's mechanic is replaced here with don knotts and herbie's entered in the trans france race in monte carlo but falls in love with a girl car during the race 
and some jewel thieves try to use Herbie to smuggle their goods out of the country. That brings us to this installment, and I'll cover some sequels later. We start here with establishing shots of a bus moving along an oceanside road in Puerto Vallarta. It looks like everyone's sitting on the same side of the bus, so it looks full for the aerial footage. <laughs> the bus pulls up to a bunch of street shops on the beach and outsteps a young Seth MacFarlane named Pete. It's not Seth MacFarlane, but he looks like a young Seth MacFarlane. And he's followed yeah. by his, he looks a lot like Seth MacFarlane. We all agree. And he's <laughs> followed by his nerdier sidekick named DJ. Uh, the two of them share some things that they already know back and forth about how they are here to collect a car that Pete inherited and that Pete is carrying all of the money that they need for the storage fee. A young pickpocket named Paco hears this last bit about money and wraps up a shoe shine ahead of schedule to follow them out of the scene. He offers them a shine and when they shoo him off, he offers to show them Yeah. He offers to show them a good time. Show you plenty good time. And they tell him that it isn't in the budget. I'm not sure what he's pitching here. You should but also they seem to know exactly <laughs> what he means. Yeah, yeah. He say he offers to show them a good time out of context sounds yes. really weird. But that's yeah, but I'm what still it sounded like in the context of what, the film. Is yeah. he going to take him to a strip club or something? Yes. It's Puerto Vallarta. Yeah. Okay. He offers to escort them to the storage place where they plan to pick up the car. He gets them close and just recites the last few turns before they part ways. And then he ducks behind like a concrete barrier. And instead of what I thought was going to happen, pulling out the wallet and checking and see what he what he just won, instead he just snaps his fingers on both hands and points into the camera with a big smile and then continues running. So he's just celebrating his, his theft. Uh, we cut inside an office with a balcony on the water where Prindle is looking into a viewfinder type thing at a film strip with a map to an undiscovered Incan temple with supposed buried treasure or Incan treasure, maybe not yeah, buried. Just, just just the whole city would be a treasure, but he's smart enough to know that there's untouched gold and artifacts there that he can right. plunder. So basically some oil prospecting planes were flying over the jungle and spotted this temple in this South American jungle. And the location of the temple suggests the presence of pre-Columbian artifacts as well as gold, so they could make a lot of money off of what they find here. The finder just wants cash because stealing artifacts is a headache, and it's trouble if you're caught with them because they're considered national treasures by the local government. So unless it's Indiana Jones doing the stealing, mm-hmm. then uh, then it's just plain old archaeology, but for these guys it would be theft. Pete and DJ collect the bug from the storage yard. And the guy checking it out says, Mr. Douglas, Pete's uncle, told them that this car won the Monte Carlo Grand Prix, which I can confirm. It did do that. <laughs> Seems like, based on its reputation, they were expecting a sports car that they could enter in races. So they're kind of upset to see that right. it's a Volkswagen bug. But how did it get to Puerto Vallarta? It could have swam there, for all we know. It does all sorts of weird stuff. Yeah, we do prove that it can do that. Maybe it, it was already in a underwater. South American race somewhere. Who knows? When the time comes to pay, DJ realizes that his pocket has been picked, and they ask the guy at the storage yard if they can take their own property for a test drive. Like, they might just leave it there. I I don't understand. uh, Well, I mean, technically, I mean, they would still need to pay him for the storage fee. Yeah. But But the guy says fine because it's his first day or he hates money or something. Well, also, I do like how quickly uh, uh, Pete is able to pick up that DJ doesn't have the money. And just comes up with yeah, this plan on the fly. Yeah. Like the moment he sees DJ panic, he just goes, dang it. <laughs> yeah. The Temple Raiders step out of their hotel in need of a cab, and Paco offers to hail one for them or carry their luggage or whatever. And Prindle just shoves the kid hard into yeah. his associate Shepherd, 
while their third member, the relatively silent partner, Quinn, goes to flag them a cab. Shepard literally kicks Paco into the street as cars are going by. Yeah, oh yeah. my god. The, this one car didn't look like it was going to stop or didn't know it was supposed to stop for yeah. the kid. And uh, he just rises and runs between them, very narrowly avoiding getting smashed. I'm sure these are all like stunt drivers, but it seems super dangerous to watch this kid dodging through traffic like that. This time he shows off a bit, juggling the wallet that he snagged before making it around a corner. He sits and he sorts through it out in the open, and he also still has DJ's wallet. So Pete and DJ, having confirmed that this kid took the wallet, are now driving around just looking for him up and down roads. And just by sheer coincidence, they they see him, and not even all of him, just his leg is sticking out from behind some boxes. I know that leg. Yeah, and he's <laughs> like, I'd know that leg anywhere. It I was eyeing it real good. Definitely aren't any other small boys in Puerto Vallarta. Nope, this is the all. only kid. Uh, so they approach him stealthily, but the kid hears Herbie's doors creak and runs for it, and a chase ensues. So they run through a nearby house and end up back at the bug where Paco's just hiding on the other side of the car and they split up to check either direction down the street. Paco squats in front of Herbie's trunk, which is in the front of these VW bugs. When the bad guys finally get a cab, Shepard offers Prindle a number to reach him at and realizes his wallet's been snagged and so has the film strip that was going to lead them to this treasure. Even though they've been following him on foot until just a minute ago, DJ is tired of running around and assumes the kid has skipped town already somehow. They notice him across the street and grab him just as he's about to drop their wallet into a mailbox. Which is really nice of them. Yeah. I, I thought, because he only took a little bit of money. Like, he didn't take all of it. He he just took a little bit, and then he was going to put the wallet in the mail. I was like, well, that's what you do with a lost wallet. Yeah. But it's not a lost wallet, per se. But yeah, they they would conceivably get it back if he put it in there. But here, they're able to get the wallet and the money back from the kid. But when they're yanking it away from him, DJ says, Grab loose of that. Which is just a, a weird phrase. It feels old-fashioned to me, but I think that's what people would say when they're trying to get it back from him. He says, Grab loose of that. Pete offers to spank the kid, which is wrong on a few levels. Weird that he's still so angry even though they got everything back, and also that he thought you're allowed to discipline other people's kids, or that anyone should ever be allowed to pants a child in public. Paco leans back against the mailbox and flips through the other wallet, which he successfully ditches into the mailbox. Because there are two of them, I suspected one would wait with the mailbox and the other one would chase the kid, but they ditch the wallet and just chase the kid because mm-hmm. they think he took the film strip. But they don't they don't know that it's not in there, right? But he, the kid might have taken it out. So I know, they go after up. the kid. They should have split up, but <laughs> yeah, they don't. But they, yeah, that, yeah. Again, the kid is very nearly struck by, I think, the same vehicle as before. <laughs> uh, the stunt driver might have had a favorite background car. <laughs> this, this car had it in for this kid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's just, he's been ripped off too many times. This he's like, I'm just going to drive around here. also anthropomorphic, and he's got another... Yeah, there's no driver in it. <laughs> uh, it seems like the bad guys have La Policia on their side, and suddenly 15 cop cars are also in pursuit. Uh, Paco squats again beside Herbie, but then he sneaks away behind a large woman walking with laundry bags. When the cops interview the staff of the store that he disappeared into... They say they haven't seen him as he's peeking out of this woven basket near the door of the shop. So this woman seems to be playing along and letting him hide in her store. Outside the shop, Herbie opens his mouth, demanding a new child sacrifice. (laughs) (laughs) And Paco obliges. Uh, Herbie tears off down the street, sometimes at a 45 degree angle on his back wheels, and blasts past the bad guys. 
Don't you After think this they noticed the kid was hiding inside, bouncing around in there. Yeah, oh. I feel like he's definitely concussed you know, at the very least. You know, Kirby used his tongue to suppress him. <laughs> oh, there you go. Forgot this oh, car gross. clearly has a tongue. Just push the kid to the roof of your mouth. Of your car mouth. mouth. Well, I see, like, like the, the that's what was really creepy in the second Kirby uh, Kirby <laughs> Herbie movie. Is Kirby when, definitely has a tongue. Yeah, uh, is when Keenan Wynn is having that bad dream about all the different bugs chasing him. Oh they god, the, yeah, the nightmare the, sequence. They all have the the mouths, but they all making like growling dog noises. There's a pretty dark scene in every version of this movie. Yeah, like that uh, that burned in my head as a kid because like this is actually really frightening. Yeah, a cop helps the bad guys retrieve their wallet, but it turns out yes, the film strip is gone. Uh, then we move to the Sun Princess, which is just pulling out of dock. Uh, the car is being lifted onto the deck of this cruise ship in a big net, like a cargo net. And uh, Cargo a, net. Cargo. Uh, a matte painting slowly floats away <laughs> as, the, as the bad guys pull up. Um, they intend to intercept the ship at its first stop in Panama. Captain Blythe regales dinner guests on the cruise ship about a time that he and his crew attacked another ship and raped their captors. <laughs> Wait, uh, what? <laughs> he's using a weird pirate voice and telling them about the time that they stormed aboard another ship. And this is what he says. Well, the booty was taken aboard the man of war and the enemy vessel scuttled. The women were then turned over to the crew. The select one is going to the officers naturally. The wenches were escorted below, and believe me, there was no poetry, or by your leave, or how lovely you look tonight, madam. One got to the matter in hand in short order. Jesus. That is what he's saying, right? This is a Disney it, movie. Yeah. What is it, it, happening? It, it actually gets worse. Yeah. Uh, I expected this character to be more of a villain than he ended up by the end of the film. But uh, Aunt Louise hears this from a neighboring table and seems intrigued by his bravado. Uh, Captain Blythe finishes the story about murdering a boat full of people in what feels like a pre-Will Ferrell, Will Ferrell impression. He stabs a candle off of a centerpiece to light a woman's cigarette and then gets back to the carnage. Where was I? Well, the deck was awash with blood. (laughs) (laughs) We cut to the other table where Aunt Louise and Melissa are perusing their menus, and Louise tells Melissa that she would like that captain on a bed of roses. Pete and DJ are seated at the table with them, and immediately Louise is trying to set Melissa up with Pete. Melissa uses the excuse that she has to study for her doctorate to avoid pairing up with him for this vacation. Now... Uh, when Pete and DJ first enter, the maitre d' of sorts of the restaurant signals her, and she kind of like nods, like to is, Louise. Yeah. Oh, I didn't catch. And that. I'm wondering if, like, she said to him, like, if any two handsome yeah. young gentlemen Pay come them in, to come to our table. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Send them my way. That is entirely possible. It sounds like something she'd do. But Melissa here is studying Latin American cultures. And uh, the guys explain that they are here entering a car in the Brazil Grand Premio. It sounds like Pete is the driver and DJ is the mechanic. He says, like, he handles the wheel and I handle everything else, which I guess that's what that means. I, I assume more his manager. But oh, okay. kind of what I thought, yeah. Well, I, ba- I'm basing that he's the mechanic on something that happens later, I guess. Uh, but Pete is the nephew of the driver from the first and third installments of the franchise, played by Dean Jones. And Charles Martin Smith here is playing basically the Don Knotts character from the third movie. We move below decks where a man singing in Italian sets his lunch on a box in front of Herbie in the ship's hold. Just as he brings the first piece of lettuce to his mouth, a phone rings and he's called away. And then Herbie scoots up in his absence and opens his mouth 
and Paco leans out of the car and just steals all of the food. <laughs> and when the guy comes back, he's like, Who take my chicken? And he's like looking all over yeah, for he, it. He like looks under the tomatoes. Yeah. <laughs> he picks up the tiny tomato slice and looks under it. Um, but then as he's looking around for it, the car trunk opens again and bones are just flying out of it and landing on the plate. Now, his first instinct isn't to think that there's somebody no. inside the car. No, it's imme- that's crazy. It's immediately to, this car is eating my yes. food. But there's clearly just a kid in there. You would just assume there was a kid in there. Well, but, or just even when he opened it, I don't know how you don't see a child in well, there. Well, the first time it opens, he's standing on the side of it. So he's not actually looking into the trunk to see the kid sitting there. But then somehow, so he's convinced that this car is not a person. And he pries the trunk open to try and get his food back. But he falls on the floor and then turns around with plenty of time to see the the front just completely open. And he would have seen the kid. Yeah. But he just watches the rest of the bones come out with a shocked face. And uh, he goes and he picks up a crowbar. And he's going to just start bashing this car to pieces because it ate his food when suddenly it just pulls away and starts driving all throughout the ship. He phones for reinforcements and they all agree that this is worth wasting the captain's time. They surround the car and all jump on it and it drives away dragging like five men through this ship. How far can it really drive? Like this ship can't be that huge. Yeah, it's it's weird. Um, the The first guy whose food got stolen calls the captain and interrupts him at dinner. The captain immediately accuses him of drinking on duty and hangs up angrily to leave. I think that's a fair assessment. Yeah, I think so too. I would be angrier at whoever let him use this phone to make this call. <laughs> mm-hmm. They catch the car with a net and they find Paco inside of it. They, they throw a net down on the ground and when the car drives up onto it, they basically wrap up its wheels so that it can't keep driving. And they open the front and they find Paco hiding inside and it's like, oh yeah, this makes more sense. <laughs> Uh, The captain calls Pete and DJ into his office, and he threatens them with a whip. He holds them financially responsible for all the damage to the ship from the car driving around. Paco, it seems, has been put in a cage below deck, which is as timely an image as can be expected. (laughs) Yeah. Very uncomfortable. Uh, DJ hatches a plan that he will talk to Aunt Louise about loaning them money to get their car back. And Pete is in charge of flirting with the niece for no apparent reason other than to just keep her away. While well, I think that keeps the aunt happy. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like, are you saying that the aunt would know about the whole arrangement? Because I feel well, like... Because she did know. <laughs> yeah. Like, but that wasn't their plan that she knew. But I feel like she would have given them the money for the car either way. They didn't need to be dating her niece. No, but I think that she'd be more inclined to be favorable to them if they thought... If, if she thought her plan to hook them up was working. I guess, maybe. Uh, suddenly a Halloween party is happening. And this didn't work out too well in Death Ship earlier this year. <laughs> but uh, the captain is dressed as Admiral Nelson, complete with an eye patch. And uh, I checked it's the right eye. He did it correctly. Mm. Aunt Louise is flirting with him dressed as Little Bo Peep. And the rest of the cast is basically just dressed in their own personal uniforms. So DJ and Pete have on... Uh, Pete's wearing like a racing gear, like a one of those like fireproof racing jumpsuits, and DJ looks like he's wearing just a mechanic's outfit, which is why I thought he was the mechanic. Alyssa is wearing like a full-on explorer costume, complete with a pith helmet. She's out on the dance floor with Pete. He's making quick work of flirting with her, and he tells her that she's not like the other girls, which initially she doesn't take as a compliment. But he says, "No, no, no, it's a good thing. You don't giggle when nothing's funny. You listen when I talk, and you're very pretty." And he proves this to us 
by taking her glasses off, mm -hmm. blinding her. <laughs> he later walks her to her room, and she thanks him for a wonderful night, still blind from having removed her glasses, and she kisses the blurry man. Uh, back in their room... She's like, he was handsome, right? <laughs> I hope you're handsome. Back in their room, Pete and DJ discuss the successful plan. Aunt Louise has agreed to pay for the car, and everything's going according to plan. I said plan a lot. Below decks, Paco sits in a cage on a blanket when Herbie rolls up to the gate. Herbie begins speaking in short honks to approximate words for what I want to say is the first and last time in this entire franchise. Can we be friends? What's your name? Okay. He doesn't do this in the other movies, I don't remember. I trying mean, to talk? Yeah, I mean, he talks with charades mostly, not with actual like... Like, it's just yeah, very B weird. Very BB-8. Yeah. Paco asks what his name is, and not understanding the beeps, decides that Herbie is Ocho, based on the 5 and 3 printed on his hood. Herbie uses his antenna as an appendage to lift keys off of a key rack to Paco's cell. And then he somehow uses the key, like he puts it into the keyhole and turns it. Or does Paco do Paco, that? Paco does that. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah, he can reach his hands out and turn it but they had to do they had to do separate inserts of paco getting because he very had a had a really hard time getting that key into the lock yeah so then they just did a cutaway insert of the lock being finally unlocked yeah and it was like yeah because that there's no way he could he could unlock it blindly from, from the other side he opens the cage and lets paco hop inside of him to escape recapture ocho pulls into an elevator and presses the button to go up to the deck with all the passengers does so he use his antenna again to push buttons? I think he does. Back at the costume party, the captain continues speaking about capturing people from other ships, which you're not supposed to do if you're a cruise ship captain. I mean, do you think he's making all of these stories up? I'm sure he is, but I also don't know why he's doing that, because these people can't possibly believe that he did these things. But who knows? Maybe he's very old school. Maybe he's a vampire and he did these things. I don't know. Paco comes blasting through the wall uh, in Ocho, and they knock over people and tables, and a giant pie gets thrown right in the captain's face. And he's not happy about it. So we cut right to Herbie's punishment, where he is being made to walk the plank. And by walk the plank, I mean Walt Disney Pictures dumped a full-on Volkswagen bug in the ocean off the side of a cruise ship. Never to be retrieved. This is very upsetting. I hope this was the first take. Oh, God. Because <laughs> if there's multiple cars out there, that's that's not good. There's all these Herbies but, like, in the in addition ocean. to it feeling just incredibly wasteful, it it was a sad moment. Yeah. You were killing the car. Yeah, and we get more of that later, too, where it's just like, this is weird for, like, what's supposed to be a kid's movie that we're watching Herbie die. In the first movie, there's a scene where <laughs> Dean Jones gets another car like a sports car that he wants to race and he's like look at how pretty that car is and he comes back out in the middle of the night and herbie is just ramming it into the side of his house like just bashing in the side of this other car oh and then he leaves and then dean jones chases it on foot and he finds herbie trying to jump off the golden gate bridge oh, <laughs> it's super dark oh my God. yeah but here we're just watching him be murdered so that's a little better i guess the captain shouts, I herewith committed to the sea. Which reminded me of Death Ship Death again. Ship, yeah. We commit her soul and we commit her body to the deep. Ah! He throws the body overboard. 
The ship pulls into Panama. Doug, Pete, Aunt Louise, and Melissa are forced off, along with Paco, who's handed over to the immigration authorities. Aunt Louise says that anyone even remotely involved with the car has been ejected from the cruise. If it hadn't been for that steward, we'd have been keel-hauled. <laughs> Which is another crazy dark thing that uh, they yeah, used to do. Yeah, you had to explain that to me. Where yeah. you would, like, chain up your prisoner or the person being punished and drag them under the ship yeah. to their death. And generally, the barnacle-ridden underside of a yeah. ship would just, just tear them tear to shreds. You up. It's ridiculous. But it's a funny joke here. Uh, the boys come clean to Aunt Louise about their plan, and Melissa overhears the last bit when Pete is asking Louise to break it to her gently. She pushes past them and says, You meet such interesting types on ships, because she heard everything and Pete's embarrassed. But I really don't feel like he said anything really negative. In I fa- thought he said that he wasn't interested. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Well, that, I think that's negative. That in, in a but it's not like he, he d- said... Disappointing I, for her. But, no, but he he didn't put it in such a way like he's like i was only using her to get to your money like it was it, he was like trying to let her down easy like like he was very apologetic in his I tone th- i think what she's upset about is that he pretended like he was genuinely into her but it turns out that even with the glasses off he was like meh i think he is genuinely into her but that's not what he's telling aunt louise though. yeah he would have just kept going along with it if he was genuinely into her. But he says that he's not. He says, look, I like her. She seems like a really nice girl, and I hope you'll break it to her gently. Like, I'm done with her. Bye. Because well, they're parting ways. Yeah, they're parting ways. You don't have to. You both got dumped in Panama at the same time. You could get married right no, here. No, because they're on, their way, they're on their way to different places. They can't stay together. Where are they going? They're going to Rio. Why are they going to Rio? Their car's in the ocean. Because that's where they have to go. No, it's not. <laughs> They don't have to go there anymore. I think that's a good point. Well, then where are Aunt Louise and Melissa going? Both of them got kicked off of the ship here. They but were where supposed are they to going? stay on the cruise ship. Right, but they have a final destination. And right. they have the means to go there. Right. And they could continue to go there. They could book another cruise. Right. They could book a cruise with these two guys, her her niece and her, her niece's boyfriend and his friend. And they could go wherever they want because these guys have no plan now. Their car got dumped off the boat. They also have no money to go anywhere. Aunt Louise has all the money anyone needs. She's a rich lady. All right. Melissa's carrying $500 in cash in her purse. Someone tries to push Paco off to immigration authorities, but he gets intercepted by John Vernon, posing as the juvenile authority. And Paco says, no, he's not. And he kicks him in the shin and runs for it. We get this weird shot of Herbie floating through the Panama Canal, which draws the attention of the canal employees. Paco notices too. Somewhere in the trivia, I saw that Herbie is actually the first car to pass through the Panama Canal. I assume by floating in the water because mm-hmm. i think lots of cars are shipped through this port but uh but this would imply that the the sun princess also went through the panama canal possibly yeah but if that's the case and this herbie was the first car to go through this port i'm sure he's also the last car to go through the port in the water because why mm. would another car ever do that this marks the first of two consecutive movies that disney released in which a non-boat pretends to be a boat Paco notices Ocho in the water and swims out to rescue him with the help of several other adult men. They get Ocho to the shore, but Ocho seems pretty dead, and the men make plans to strip him for parts. Paco constructs a small burial mound around him and mourns his death. But then he just comes back to life. Yeah, as Paco is walking away, Herbie just chokes back to life, just starts coughing up smoke, and then Paco's like, all right, I gotta drive you out of here before these people take you apart. We get a montage of them just having fun driving together 
under a song about friendship that ends with, I'll bet you a banana, manana, you'll have a new friend. And I bet you a banana, manana, you'll have a new friend. Either later that night or the next morning, I can't tell because we're indoors and it's relatively dark, but Paco is painting the word taxi on the side of Ocho. They're in like a shed. I don't know if they just snuck into somebody's shed and used their paint, but uh, it seems like Paco's plan is to use Ocho as a taxi to make money. And he's surprised when the garage door opens to reveal that the bad guys found them somehow. <laughs> yeah, I was like, wait, what? Just like, check that shit over there. Uh, they are there for the film strip that he stole, and he can't find it, and he doesn't have it. So he's suggesting that it's possible they got mixed up and ended up in Pete's wallet or DJ's wallet. I can't remember whose wallet it was. I think it was DJ's right. wallet. But uh, then they threaten to burn him with a blowtorch. Well, they oh, wait, no, Herbie. Yeah. yeah, but at first it looks like they're like... I'm going to cut your legs off, kid. Like they, they pop up this blowtorch and light it. And then they're like, all right, we're going to chop your car up to pieces. But they don't know this car's alive. I don't know why they would make this threat. Mm-hmm. It just seems well, like an odd choice. They're, they're going to sell it. They're going to sell the pieces, right? He said they're going to chop it up into tiny pieces. <laughs> like I assumed like smaller than resellable parts, but maybe. I mean, I think the point is that they were going, that they're trying to scrap the car. Yeah. But they could do that with any car. But then they let Paco go to get the wallet, and they let him go with Herbie. Yeah. So now they have nothing. <laughs> now they have no leverage. Yeah. He um, can just drive away forever. That's true. Because Herbie does. doesn't need gas, right? He does try to do that. No, he, he goes to get the wallet first. He he follows through with their plan as if Herbie not is completely. Under we'll get there. So back downtown in, I guess, Panama, Pete and GJ have somehow already secured jobs as waiters. And they're blaming the kid for all their troubles when suddenly he shows up to apologize and he asks for Pete's forgiveness and gives him a big hug. And then he asks where the bathroom is. So Pete points him in that direction and then realizes that his wallet is missing again and that Paco has disappeared through the back window of the restrooms. Paco escapes in Ocho and instead of just bringing the wallet back to the bad guys, he drives right past them and uh, he gets stuck in traffic for a second, but Right as he stops, Aunt Louise and Captain Blythe are getting into his cab from opposite sides. Unfortunately, in a Volkswagen bug, there's only two doors. Mm-hmm. So to get into this car at the same time, they would have had to fold down the entire front seat. <laughs> but somehow they're able to do that without crushing Paco. They get into the back. They recognize each other. And the captain wants to go to the Sun Princess and she wants to go to some hotel or something. And so they're both shouting back and forth at their driver, who they haven't noticed is very small. And they continue for a couple minutes before they recognize the, not only the kid, but the car that they threw in the ocean earlier. And here's the biggie. I think it's the same car. And uh, the chase begins as the bad guys start following this cab with Louise and Blythe screaming in the back seat. They race past Melissa on the sidewalk. She's standing with Pete and DJ. And uh, she says, oh, they shanghaied them. Like, she thinks that Paco was, like, kidnapped Aunt Louise. Mm-hmm. And so she needs a car. So she runs over to a bus nearby and just stops in front of it and offers the driver $340 for the bus. And he kicks off all of his passengers who are mostly children. It's probably not even his bus. He's probably just driving them for a school. (laughs) And he's just like, yeah, sure. It's your bus. Bye. Somehow the chase leads them all to a bullfighting ring. And I forget how, but the bad guys end up in front. So they end up entering the ring before Ocho and they actually crash into the bull in the ring. They like nudge him in the butt and it pisses the bull off. 
the matador's mad because two cars just rolled into this the bullfight that he's supposed to be doing yeah and it looks like el presidente is is uh overseeing this particular event oh as is well. he really i didn't realize that well there was a there's like a guy in like a huge uniform interesting and i'm just assuming he's supposed to be a very important like, person yeah uh the matador throws his cape over the rearview mirror of the car um and he walks out of the ring and we see this overhead shot where the bull clearly runs full speed into the side of an actual car which bothers me a lot because i feel like you could definitely hurt this bull doing this but he flips the car up on one side and the bad guys all climb out of it and run to jump over into the stands the bull turns its attention on herbie for what i would call a slightly overlong bullfighting sequence mm-hmm. uh during which the bull connects multiple times with the side of an actual vw bug uh, eventually herbie uses his hood to sweep the cape around as if he were an actual matador and also to stop the dirt by spinning his wheels ocho pops up on his back wheels to avoid a swipe from the bull and the crowd loves it at this point the bull basically surrenders it's just done chasing Mm -hmm. him around in the ring and the captain wants to be mad but he's also infatuated with the adulation of the crowd he's like oh this is great this is another adventure for me to tell people about and then there's this really weird shot of herbie rotating in place yeah it's a it's like a blue screenshot yeah but it's like we've already seen herbie turn his wheels completely sideways to move out of a position on in the, in the cargo ship yeah he didn't need to just spin on the floor here yeah it's just like what well, you could they couldn't have built an actual car just to rotate in place like yeah they they've built all or, these other versions of could this you car. also drive it in a circle i'm assuming it's just a situation where they forgot to get it on set and yeah they needed to fake it when they weren't there anymore also i really get upset watching this movie seeing herbie in the condition that he's in throughout throughout there were 26 vehicles used as herbie in this movie yeah, yeah but they're but they were yeah. six but they were all painted up like rusted yeah with, with, with a few exceptions. it's not real rust it's all paint yeah yeah um but it's just like i don't know it's just really upsetting to see him all like messed, messed up, up. Yeah. yeah well they fix him up in the other movies don't worry i was expecting like a uh you know, like the end of Star Wars where the robots were all shiny yeah, at yeah, the end yeah. of the movie, but that doesn't happen. Yes, it does. I mean, he's not all shiny. He's still, isn't, isn't no, he still no, rusty? He, no, no, he's brand, he's, he's like all new. Oh, okay. I and then, that then. Well, we'll get into that because I have a really big problem with that scene too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Paco and Ocho leave when they see the bad guys are headed for them again. And uh, the captain and Aunt Louise basically have to catch a ride on Melissa's bus as it's moving through town. But the bus is constantly breaking down and uh at one point they need a wire to fix it and louise asks a local for a wire and when he doesn't understand her she helpfully explains it sounds like fire (laughs) as though he couldn't tell that those two words sounded similar but then he tries to give them fire and uh the captain is trying and failing to call for help on a phone he's trying to get a ride back to the sun princess because he doesn't want to be a part of this adventure anymore the bad guys in a plane find ocho driving down a road and uh they just track him paco parks ocho in what looks like griffith park i'm pretty yeah. sure it's griffith yeah. park and uh, he steps into a bar but it turns out the bad guys are waiting there to steal him in front of apparently complicit panamanians or wherever we are yeah this time they're just taking the boy yeah who now uh, has the wallet with the thing that they need right the bus breaks down again and ocho pulls up to aunt louise and the boys and melissa and the captain and they all hop into this tiny car the bad guys with paco in tow find the incan ruins 
and they're able to pry loose this large gold coin from the face yeah. of it. Well, it's like they're immediately there. Yeah. They, they somehow found a place to land and and, and then, then drove to it. And from. then immediately found a building that had gold and they were already in in process of pulling it down. Yeah, and it's like the size of a deep dish pizza. It's like a huge It's like a manhole cover, yeah. you know, it's yeah. it's massive. They basically just leave this kid at the temple and take the coin and then drive away cuz they just want him to die in these woods basically. Mm-hmm. Um but very quickly Herbie pulls up with everyone and they collect Paco and he says what well, that they stole the coin and this this is an ancient Incan temple. I mean, it's not really a coin. Well, he tells them that they stole some gold off of it. I would call it a coin. It's coin shaped. Yeah, but it's the size of a manhole cover. Like medallion, is that better? <laughs> what would you call it? A disc? A circle? Yeah. A circle of gold. A, a circle of gold. <laughs> it's, a, it's like a tabletop. Yeah. Um, the lazy Susan of gold. I'll accept. Oh, good compromise. <laughs> uh, Paco tells them that they stole the this circle of gold (laughs) and they head to a university to report the theft of the artifact uh for some reason they cover ocho in bananas on the way there even though the bad guys shouldn't really care about them anymore um yeah and why do they go to the university like i mean i understand why the good guys go but why did the bad bad guys guys? go it turns out that the bad guys only go there to intercept them because they're afraid that the police they're going to call the police on them Mm. but wouldn't they have done that wouldn't that have happened anyway like wasn't yeah. paco going to report them to the police if he survived because then all they do is tie them up at the university yeah where someone's going to find them and call the police immediately yeah, when they exactly. find a bunch of people tied it's up. much more suspicious than a dead kid in the woods <laughs> <laughs> patrick knows from experience <laughs> trust me nobody asks any questions outside paco is just selling bananas off the car in the parking lot and uh the bad guy who is a pilot starts up their plane the bad guys are struggling to move the coin from their car to their plane. The circle of gold. The, sorry. The circle of gold from the car to the plane when Ocho starts throwing bananas at them. They're they're attached all over its hood and it's just opening its hood and throwing hands of bananas at them. And they're just covered in like banana juice. It's real Ugh. gross. Yeah, yeah. It makes me uncomfortable. They're slimy with it for like the whole rest of the movie. Ocho won't let this plane take off and starts biting it with its hood. (laughs) Like it keeps opening its hood and closing its hood and trying to like bite chunks out of it. Eventually, Ocho succeeds in busting off the tail and wings of this plane. Paco's friends successfully untie themselves in the professor's office and the chase is on again. The cops, like a military team that were headed to the university, are now chasing with Ocho uh, to follow the bad guys in this plane like what's left of the plane which yeah. is just the body and the wheels basically and uh they chase it down the road until it crashes into a roadblock and even the prop falls off <laughs> now there's like mm-hmm. nothing left of this plane as it tips backward the coin rolls sorry the circle of gold <laughs> rolls out of the back and uh, the bad guys are all arrested and uh we're back on the sun princess in the captain's quarters where louise is dancing for him and he says, any man of the sea who wouldn't want her rolling under him is ready for dry dock. But it's clear pretty quickly that he's referring to the galleon outside of the ship. Um, we cut to Pete and DJ's room where somehow Ojo is parked in their cabin of yeah. the ship. Yeah, How do, there's no way the car could have gotten in there. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> like they somehow drove it in there and they have decided that Paco will drive it for the Grand Premio because clearly Paco has 
some supernatural connection to the car. And, and then they started up inside the room. Yeah, because yeah, they're all going to commit suicide now. And, and, I, and this is where I got really worried. I'm like, okay, well, now we're going to get to the big race in Rio because now that we've got all our ducks in a row, we can – In a Rio. We're going we're gonna to see the big finish of this movie with this race that they've been talking th- about through all, the whole movie, right? I have to say, this movie gets an unfair – criticism a lot of people say that it's not the best that it's the worst of the herbie franchise and i disagree because there is no race at the end of this movie what because the races are the worst parts of the herbie movies they're the best parts. i'm cool with car chases like through cities and so the, the, pieces, car, the car chase the actual Her- races are not fun so the car chase in herbie 2 when they're chasing the old lady around while she's trying to get her grocery list in order yes that was better. That's was better than the last 20 when minutes up, of the first He goes up the Golden movie. Gate Bridge. Yes. And then they're running up the Golden Gate Bridge after him. Yes, because they can run car speed. <laughs> uh, we, of course, here we have the credits um, over the friendship song again. And that's the end of the film. Uh, Disney followed this installment with five episodes of a TV series, again starring Dean Jones, and then a TV movie in the late 90s with Bruce Campbell. Yeah. And Matt Dillon, I think, right? Was the no, villain? Matt Dillon was in Herbie Fully Loaded. Oh, okay. Uh, but in this movie, he's never actually called Herbie. Just once. Correct? He gets called Herbie once at the yard where they're picking him up. Oh, they do? Okay. Yeah. He, he's reading a message name. from Mr. Douglas, which is the guy's uncle's name, and he says something like, uh, Herbie C, Herbie Stop, or something like that. I can't remember what he says, but he says Herbie's name. You're telling me that this thing won the Monte Carlo Grand Prix? That is what Senor Douglas, he told me. He say he would have won the Baja race too, but his girlfriend did not make the curve. Herbie, he said, he stopped. He no finished the race. Senor Douglas say, it's here. And then the rest of the movie, he's Ocho, basically. Yeah, but the guys, in that, like, none of the characters aside, actually, like, call him that. Right. Yeah, nobody calls him Herbie. And then after the Bruce Campbell one, we had Herbie Fully Loaded in 2005 with Lindsay Lohan and Michael Keaton. And that's the one that has Matt Dillon as okay. the bad guy. Brecken Meyer is her brother. And, nice. uh, and Justin Long is, like, the mechanic for that one. It's actually pretty decent. I didn't hate it. I, I think that one gets a bad rap too. It's, I probably like it because it was written by Thomas Lennon and Robert Ben Garant, who are two of my favorite screenwriters. Mm. Uh, but that's going to lead me into some non-canon sequels. Uh, the first being two years after Fully Loaded. Uh, another favorite writing team of mine, Kurtzman and Orky, wrote a script that was then directed by the great Michael Bay. That's the first Transformers film. Mm-hmm. The first Transformers movie... I'm fairly confident, stole one scene beat for beat from Herbie Fully Loaded, which I think maybe even the Transformers animated series used a bug because bugs were cute because Herbie was a love bug. But the scene where Lindsay Lohan gets Herbie, it's her graduation day. Her dad is taking her to get her a car, which is the same way Transformers opens. Mm -hmm. It's his graduation day. His dad is taking to get him a car. He goes to a junkyard slash used Used car car lot and she's looking at all the cars and she's specifically avoiding the bug because she doesn't want the bug and she sees other cars that she likes and the guy running the place is like oh you should get this other one and she's like oh yeah i really like that one and he's trying to gouge her on the price and then the anthropomorphic car starts destroying all the other cars in the lot so that the guy at the junkyard will get rid of that car 
And it's the exact same scene that happens in the Transformers movie with Bernie Mac where the cars are all getting destroyed. I was just like, this is really too close. And to have come out two years before, I feel like they just borrowed this like whole cloth from Herbie Fully Loaded. But uh, the rest of the movie has nothing to do with Herbie Fully Loaded. So good job on the rest of it because I actually really like that movie. The director here was Vincent McAvity. Uh, he does a lot of Disney features. He did Million Dollar Duck, Strongest Man in the World, The Apple Dumpling Gang Rides Again, and uh, he also directed the previous Herbie film, Her- Herbie and Monte Carlo, uh, or Herbie Goes to Monte Carlo. He also did a lot of Golden Age TV, Untouchables, Star Trek original series, Gunsmoke, and he came back for a couple episodes of the 1982 series, uh, Herbie series, and later he did like Murder, She Wrote, Columbo, Diagnosis, Murder, uh, the writer for this was Don Tate, who also did a bunch of Disney stuff. He wrote both Apple Dumpling Gang movies and the Shaggy DA. Cloris Leachman was Aunt Louise. She's great. She was Ruth Popper in The Last Picture Show. She was Frau Blucher in Young Frankenstein. She's Gran in the Crudes movies, both of them, because there's a second one coming. She, she plays Granny in a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> and then she plays Mama on Raising Hope. But she was not in my episode. She, credit only for my episode. She also plays Gam Gam in Beer Fest, which is one of my favorite characters from her. And uh, she's also the voice of Old Marceline on Adventure Time. Yeah. Uh, I, I liked her in Bad Santa, where, <laughs> sure. where, where they keep thinking she's dead. <laughs> and then she just keeps getting back up. <laughs> which is kind of funny, because she, she was an old lady in this movie. <laughs> she's yeah. still around, and she's still hilarious. Charles Martin Smith was DJ. Uh, I probably recognize him most from Untouchables and American Graffiti. He's also in more American Graffiti, mm. <laughs> which I have not seen. Uh, I mostly know him from Starman and the oh, yeah. Gina Davis. Is he uh, a cop or something in that? No, he's a scientist who's out oh, to, okay. who's trying to catch him. Ca- he's trying to catch him for good, though. Like he, yeah. Um, and then uh, he's really great in Speechless with uh, Gina Davis and Michael Keaton. Speechless? Mm-hmm. That's the the director of Tremors, Ron Underwood. Uh, I don't know that one. No, yeah, they're both they're both speechwriters for uh, opposing campaigns, but they meet oh, okay. each other and they don't know that they're the they keep giving each other advice, but they huh. don't know that they're like the opposing team's writers. It's got a Interesting. Got mail kind of thing going. Yeah, on. Um, it's really wonderful. It's got Christopher Reeve and um, I said Charles Martin Smith is in that. You said Ron Underwood directed? Yeah, I believe so. I like him. We met him at that tremor screening. Yes, we did. Um. Charles Martin Smith was also the vice president in Left Behind 3. Yeah, Ron Underwood, Speechless. Cool. Did uh, did Brent uh, Maddock write it? Because I know he works with Ron Underwood uh, Robert a lot. King, who okay, I don't, don't know. know that one. Um, John Vernon was Prindle. Uh, he's obviously Dean Warmer in Animal House and reprised the role for 13 episodes of Delta House, the TV show based on Animal House, which had a surprising number of the cast come back from the movie, I didn't realize. I mean, obviously, you don't have Belushi. But I didn't, D-Day, I didn't D-Day realize was on the there was show, a TV right? show for that. Yeah, the, it's got Bruce McGill, it's got Stephen First, um, a couple other guys. Uh, he's also the mayor in Dirty Harry. He's also the voice of Rupert Thorne on Batman the Animated Series. Mm. And he played Dave Ryerson in The Gauntlet. Season one, episode four of MacGyver. Stephen W. Burns was Pete. This was his second to last film before Stryker in 1985. And uh, very tragically, he was injured in a car accident hmm. and infected with HIV by an emergency blood transfusion and died of complications from AIDS in 1990. So that's sad. I hope that the car accident had nothing to do with this movie. Uh, no, it didn't because he did a movie in 1985. So. 
just because you get in a car accident doesn't mean you can't do another movie. Yes, it does. There's a rule. Alyssa Davalos played Melissa. Uh, she's Miss Millie Gaskill in The Apple Dumpling Gang Rides Again with the same director and writer. And she was also Nikki Carpenter. That's right. <laughs> on the MacGyver series. She's uh, the closest thing to a love interest that he ever had on the show. Like long-term love interest other than uh, Penny Parker's more of a sister character. Yeah. and well, But she also played uh, a short-lived character, right? in right? the same season. And th- at the beginning yeah. of the first season, it was a two-part episode called Lost Love. She played a character named Lisa Kohler. Mm-hmm. And then that character, I think, died or yeah. left. And uh, then they brought her back as this other character. Um Joaquin the third played Paco. Um, his dad was actually the voice of Panchito in The Three Caballeros. And as an adult, he has worked a lot with improv teams in the Los Angeles area, including the Groundlings and Improv Olympics. His daughter has continued the Disney tradition as the main character of the Disney Plus series Diary of a Future President, which I see constantly. It's like on the front page of Disney Plus right now. And we also had a chance to sit down with him and talk about his experience working on the film. Oh, what? What? Why don't you guys tell me about these things? So why don't we uh, play that for you now? Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. My pleasure. My pleasure. Well, first of all, I guess I wanted to ask, what was your process for getting this role? Wow. Well, um, I actually started acting in 1973. So by 78, when I auditioned for this, you know, I had been working a long time. A lot of people think that was my first job or, or one of the first, but by then I, you know, kind of a seasoned child actor. How old were you when you started then? Oh, I was, I was five years old. Wow. I was born in 68. So, um, I was five in 73. I was on the uh, show called, well, it was a Bill Cosby variety show. Okay. Um, on Channel 4, NBC, and um, I was just one of the kids on that show. That was my first job. But um, by the time I auditioned for Herbie, I was 10. And uh, really, it was just another, you know, uh, my the agent got the breakdown, sent my picture in, and uh, I was called in. There was about like 500 kids, you know, 500 boys. Oh, wow. At the beginning. And we, you know, I went in and uh, auditioned, call back, call back. You know, we had narrowed down to a few kids. And then uh, at the end, uh, we did a screen test. The funny thing about that um, is that I was on another show called Via Alegre, which was a bilingual children's show in the 70s. Okay. Uh, um, and it started in 70 and it ended in 80. But I was on that show from uh, 75 to 80. And on that show, that we were a bunch of kids. And one of the boys, his name is David Yanis, actually was the last kid that screen tested against me. So huh. we were, we were, we knew each other. We were friends. Uh, and it just so happens that we were the last two boys and we did screen tests at Disney studios and I booked it and he didn't. So, wow. yeah. Had you seen the earlier Herbie movies? Oh yeah. By that time, I mean, one of my favorite movies growing up was Herbie the Love Bug, the first one. Oh, okay. Um, Herbie Rides Again, Herbie Goes to Monte Carlo were great, but uh, Herbie, the first one is my favorite. But um, by then, uh, yeah. Big, big fan of Disney and Herbie, of course. Yeah. Uh, my dad being um, one of the Disney uh, legends. Right. 
for voice for my dad was a did you know my dad was a yeah he's Panchito right right so you know big Disney fan by then so that's awesome very excited to work with uh, Herbie when I was looking through the shooting locations for the film it looks like it was kind of split between Southern California and then a bit in Mexico and a very small bit of it in Panama yes did you travel a lot for the film oh yeah yeah I, I think it's different uh, now but you know back in those days I think especially the pre-eisner uh, you know it took a long time to make a film you know three or four months sure um nowadays they do it in 30 days you know they yeah. everything's so much compressed but um yeah we traveled a lot and not only that my mom my dad and my little brother ricky uh who's seven years younger than me we uh, they all went along with me so you know we went to mexico panama so you had an entourage with you i did i did <laughs> have an entourage <laughs> but uh they all came along so it was kind of fun kind of a family trip work you know i also noticed looking through some of the locations the climax of the film where the plane is being destroyed was actually filmed in camarillo which is actually yeah, camarillo. that's where we're recording this podcast right now oh my gosh i, I grew weird. up in camarillo so it's just funny yeah to it's that. um it's a retreat or a seminary or something right right i think I the even... i think the land has all been torn down for some kind of development now but that's what it oh was oh my at the gosh time. okay in the Puerto Vallarta scenes, it seems uh -huh. like you're getting shoved around a lot, very close to moving cars. How carefully was that traffic coordinated? Well, you know what? Again, um, very interesting. Um, you know, I've been at this so long now that um, I worked in the industry when it wasn't very safe, honestly. Sure. And um, I always say pre-Twilight Zone movie. Yes. Because, yeah. because after that, when those two ch children got killed and Big Moro, uh, by the helicopter, I think things changed a great deal. Um, but my whole career as a child actor before that, um, we took a lot of risks, not only in Herbie, but, you know, I did Westerns and I did, uh, you know, I was on a show called Code Red about firemen. I I, lit, I got lit on fire. And, oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh, so uh, those things you're watching, uh, we had a great stuntman, of course, Buddy Joe Hooker, uh, who is, um, I think he's the president of Stunts Unlimited now. But um, he's a very famous stuntman, and he was the coordinator, and he and I worked a lot together because he drove the car, yeah, uh, the, the special car, so, to make it look like it was driving itself. Oh, that makes sense, yeah. Yeah, he was in the back seat. That's another that's a whole other story. But um, it was very – I think it was more dangerous than it would be now. My daughter has been an actress – uh, for a long time. So I've seen that things have changed a great deal, you know? Yeah. So, That's good. It's progress. Pro yes, for sure. But it was fun. I, you know, I, I didn't, you know, you tell me what to do and I do it. I, I was a <laughs> kind of a child actor, so it, I don't know. It was fun. So what was it like working with Harvey Corman and Cloris Leachman? Oh my gosh. Well, of course, both legends. Yeah. Both very funny comedians, which I, that's my forte is comedy. Yes. And, um, you know, we're growing up watching the Carol Burnett show. Harvey was one of my favorite actors. So it was a dream come true, really. I mean, when you get to work with somebody that you're, you, you idolize and you look up to. Yeah. And of course, of course, she's been a fine actress. Uh, but I wasn't really a fan of hers as much as I was Harvey. Sure. You know, he and I, uh, he taught me a lot during that shooting about improv, about comedy, uh, timing. And we we were friends after. So after the shooting, uh, we stayed friends for oh, a that's long great. time. Yeah. Any other fun recollections from your time on the set? I've always enjoyed being on a set. My my wife um, that I've been married to for almost 27 years now says I either grew up, I was either on a set growing up or, or in a restaurant because my parents owned a restaurant. <laughs> okay. 
So, you know, I was really at home on set, you know, and especially at Disney Studios, because again, this is a long time ago, it was 78, 79. Um, I, I, you know, I probably shouldn't have, but I sneaked around the studio and <laughs> <laughs> saw things that I probably shouldn't have seen or been. You know, my daughter's very, very, you know, she likes to follow the rules and she's very, you know, by the book. <laughs> so we'll be on a, at a studio a lot, you know, maybe uh, she's auditioning and I'm like, hey, let's walk over here and go in the studio, see what's in there. <laughs> and she's like, no, you can't do that. You know, so uh, I was the opposite. I snuck around and saw stuff that I probably shouldn't have. Um, so that was a lot of fun for me, you know, I mean, uh, growing up as a child actor, I obviously loved it. So I loved just being on set, honestly, but watching, you know, how they did, cause they had 27 Herbies. I don't know if you knew that, but yeah. in those days, again, I always, I sound like an old man, but in those days, um, everything was mechanical. There was really no CGI, you know, blue right. screen, but so everything, um, every car had its own specialty, you know, and. That's why they had so many. Yeah. So it was fun watching them do that. Did you ever see the uh, Herbie Fully Loaded? I did. What did you think of that one? I enjoyed it. Yeah. There was there was some kind of back and forth uh, for me to try to be in it as a cameo, but uh, that didn't work out. Oh, okay. At the beginning, you see like a flash. It looks like they dressed a child in my outfit. Oh, really? If you remember the movie at the beginning, it's like kind of like, like newspaper stuff. Yeah, the montage like. of all the previous yeah. films. And I'm in there. Or my character, I guess. Yeah. Um, but I enjoyed it. I, you know, I I still love Herbie to this day, and uh, seeing him on the screen was great. You know, it was it was different than what I was used to, but that's what happens when things get redone or you know revisited. Yeah, but I was disappointed, like you said, to to not have the the practical visual effects for the car that they use so much CG for it. Right. Because right. you like but again, seeing it happen. Diff- it's a different world, you know. Yeah. And I love Michael Keaton. Oh yeah, of course. Just, just so you know. Yeah, <laughs> so everybody whatever, does. Whatever, whatever he's in, I love watching. Yeah. I don't care. <laughs> so yeah, so that was a plus. Um, I know your family has all kinds of Disney connections with your father yes. having been Panchito. Your daughter mm-hmm. is uh, obviously on the Disney Plus show, The Diary of a Future President. That just got picked up for a second season. Did it? Know? That's great. Yep. I yeah. uh, I just wanted to say I watched a couple episodes to prepare for this with my daughter, and she was oh. totally into it. She was. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Really? So How old's your daughter? Uh, she's six right now. She's going to be seven soon, but she was totally okay. on board with the story and your daughter's doing Aww. a great job on there. Well, good. Thank you. I, I'll let her know. She'd be very happy to hear that. Was there anything else that you or Carmina have coming up soon that you might want to plug on the show? I have a film coming out. Um, I have a small part. It's called Shadows. Okay. It's kind of a um, action movie. Uh, I play a low-level drug dealer. Uh, and for this part, I really, um, I did a lot of prepping, uh, I gained 25 pounds, stopped working out. I shaved my head, you know, so I looked balder. Oh, okay. So, so, uh, that's going to come out soon. I hope, I mean, you know, in this new world, we were going to have the premiere in August. So right. who yeah. knows what's going to happen. So I don't know if it's going to go straight to a platform, but, uh, that's a movie that I'm in that I'm doing. Uh, Carmina, of course, is, uh, we're in negotiations now for her second season. That's great. Diary of Future President. She's also on Pen Fifteen. Oh, okay. Uh, that season, she did I think one episode. Uh, she just finished the Connors, and she did the la- the second to the last episode of that. She was one of the few ever to be. They normally only use their cast. They don't get other actors to come in. Sure. Yeah. So she's one of the few to ever have been cast outside the original cast. So that was fun. That's awesome. And it was great meeting, of course. You know, John Goodman and all the cast. Oh, amazing. of course. Yeah. And uh, Alexis and Katie, she's on that too. The exact specifics of that one, I don't know. (laughs) 
shame on me, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I don't know if you knew this too, but, um, from Facebook, but I am, I was at January, I started, uh, making a documentary about my father. Oh, okay. And his career and his life. And, um, it is called, uh, the Mexican tenor. And, uh, it's all about his career and his life. And, uh, of course, Disney is in it. Of course. The Three Caballeros. Um, so I'm working on that now again. It was put on pause because of what's happening. Right. And then I'm always doing uh, improv shows. I'm doing stand-up. You know, trying to keep busy, auditioning. Sure. You know. I also wanted to ask, these are some, some non-canon theories that I had. Okay. What are your thoughts on my theory that the Herbie movies and the Transformers movies take place in the same universe? Wow. Because we have the Volkswagen bug that starts that movie. Right. I think it's just Bumblebee. Yeah. I never thought about it. Um, I also noticed when I was doing my IMDb hunting, it looks like sure. you're, you're, you have a stepsister named Linda. Yeah, Linda Gray. Uh-huh. And she appeared in a movie called Mother Jugs and Speed. Oh, my gosh. I remember that. My dad took me to see it, which I probably shouldn't have gone to see it. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, she played a pregnant woman. Well, my dad worked on that movie. He was a um, he was an advisor because he was a, a EMT with Los Angeles. Oh wow! What a what a small I'm telling you, what a small world, huh? Well, I really appreciate the time that you've you've shared with us today. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and uh, I always enjoy talking about my career and especially Herbie uh, goes bananas because it was a special time for me. Harvey Corman was Captain Blythe. Uh, he was Hedy Lamar in Blazing Saddles. Not Hedy, it's Hedley. He plays Count de Money in History of the World Part One. De Monet. Monet, say it. Monet. 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 He's also the president in Jingle All the Way, which uh, when we were reviewing Holy Moses, we were like, because uh, Lorraine Newman has the credit of first lady and we were like is she actually the first lady I don't remember the president in there but it's in a Turbo Man episode mm. that the president shows up so him and Lorraine Newman uh, were the president and first lady in Jingle All the Way and he's also the voice of the great gazoo yeah. <laughs> on the Flintstones uh, um, I mean regular on the Carol Burnett show he was yeah. a, he's a legend um, Richard Jekyll plays Shepard that was the pilot of the uh, of the three bad guys he plays Charlie Prince in the original 310 to Yuma. He's George Fox in Starman with uh, with DJ. And he's also a character in Blood Song, which is that movie we mentioned in our Defiance review that Luca Brazzi wrote about a serial killer who's trying to kill a girl who took his blood. Mm. Uh, Alex Rocco was Quinn. That's the, the quiet, uh, darker-haired guy of the bad guy team. He played Mo Green in The Godfather. And uh, he's Jake in The Stuntman, which is right around the corner for us, just a couple episodes down the line. Uh, Vito Scotti played Armando Mochia. That's the uh, guy that was trying to eat his food before the car ate it. Um, he plays Nazarene in Godfather. Um, he's also the Italian cat in the Aristocats. And he played an Italian delegate in the Nude Bomb for us earlier this year. Uh, Jack Perkins is credited as Loud American. I don't know who that would be any american <laughs> yeah <laughs> but he was the drunk convention goer in the elevator in happy hooker with the big bulge oh, okay. oh yeah yeah and herbie is credited as itself on imdb someone made a imdb page for herbie which unfortunately uh it has all the films and tv show credits you would expect and then one credit you wouldn't 
Sea Grazed Gmod Shorts, a fan-made web series that also stars Sonic the Hedgehog, Spyro, Spider-Man, Mega Man, and the Iron Giant. <laughs> also the Orange Inkling Girl. <laughs> what? <laughs> it's just like some dumb YouTube video that a guy made an IMDb page for, and because it had a CG model of Herbie in it, he put it on Herbie's IMDb page. <laughs> I hope he doesn't get sued. No, he won't get sued. It's just going to get taken down. Uh, I also wanted to bring up uh, Fritz Feld, who played oh, okay. the chief steward. Um, oh, okay. He he is a weird character actor who's mostly known for playing Mater D's. Oh, weird. Uh, he played the Mater D in uh, the second Herbie movie, uh, and when they when they drive to, when Herbie drives to the restaurant, yeah, he's known for doing this thing with his mouth where he pops. He throws his hand oh, in his yeah. mouth and pops. He does it in every film that he's in. And he, when he does it in this movie, he like frightens the passenger. Yeah. Hello. He also most notably does it in History of the World, another Harvey Corman connection, in which when uh, uh, Mel Brooks as uh, Comicus is uh, working at the restaurant where they, the, the, where they do the Last Supper yeah. bit, and he's like the maitre d' of the restaurant who's telling him to you know push the mold wine. Yeah. So I just wanted to bring him up because he's just known for playing Mater D's. And, and popping it, his mouth. And way. popping his mouth, yeah. <laughs> Interesting. This movie was all right. It had a bad rap, so going in I expected it to be worse. But having seen all of the Herbie movies now uh, over the course of a week, I think that this is not the worst one of them. Um, I also appreciated that so much of it was shot on location where the first two movies, they take place in San Francisco and there is some footage in San Francisco, but so much of it is soundstage, even exteriors, Yeah, that it's just very frustrating to watch. And at least in this film, whenever they were outside, they were actually outside. Jess, up or down? Uh, you know, like you said, it's not, it wasn't terrible. It wasn't, it, I mean, there was a lot of fun moments, but I don't think I'm going to go out and recommend anybody specifically watch this. So I guess that means it's a down for me. Yeah, I, I think for, for me as well that uh, this is not a uh, must-see title. Like I said, it was it was fine. It's not as bad as some of the Herbie movies. But uh, again, it's not something that you have to go out and check out. Uh, I agree. It's, it's going to be a down for me. As much as I love Herbie, and I do really like the Herbie movies as a whole. Yeah. Like, I, I, I think that it's a, a really fun concept that uh, has never really it, – it's always been true to the concept. Yeah. Like Her- Herbie has never gone to space or learned to talk or, or like Her- the concept. Even though he tried here. Yeah. <laughs> but but the concept of Herbie has always been, and I, I don't, in this one, I don't even like that his eyes move. Yeah. His and he does some eyes. goofy stuff. <laughs> yeah. You know, his headlights. Yeah. Uh, I don't like that that, that happens. In Herbie um, Fully Loaded, he does some moves that look like kind of like the mask a little bit mm-hmm. where you have a fully CG car replacing him and he like stretches out and does a bunch of crazy stuff behind somebody. And that bothered me a little bit. Yeah. Cause I like that. I felt like it was a real car in the first few mm-hmm. movies. Well, cause is, is it, this the first one where he gets cut in half, right? And he comes in first and, and third. third. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, uh, I, I like that they haven't done anything too crazy with Herbie, but, uh, it's still going to be a down. Yeah. Uh, letterboxed what are we looking at richard um i think i'm going to put this between midnight madness and the nude bomb okay uh i have it just above holy moses and just below humanoids from the deep okay um i am putting this just above windows and just under bronco billy um i think that's everything for this one 
If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Or as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. Please consider rating us on iTunes to help people find the show. And if you take the time to leave us a review, we will thank you personally in an upcoming episode. If you're feeling especially generous, you can support the show through Patreon.com slash VintageVideoPodcast. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing The Last Flight of Noah's Ark, which IMDb describes like so. When a plane carrying various animals makes a forced landing on a desert island, the only chance to escape is to convert the plane into a boat. We leave you now with the trailer for The Last Flight of Noah's Ark. Say hello to Noah Dugan. (coughs) Professional pilot. Professional loser. (laughs) Noah Dugan. Loser. Making another getaway. What the hell did I get into? You shouldn't curse in front of ladies. Now look, kid, don't you tell me how to talk. Watching his luck change from bad to worse in the last flight of Noah's Ark. We're running out of gas. Boeing T-29, Mayday, Mayday. Hold on! The men's civilization forgot. Gambling on a long shot with Noah Dugan. Make a boat out of what? Out of rain. A daring escape from an uncharted island. Challenging the sea with an impossible voyage. Against all hope. Against Noah Dugan's luck. Jean-Vierre Bougeot, Ricky Schroeder. I'm sorry. Lost 2,000 miles at sea. Incredible drama and adventure, as only the Disney cameras can bring to the screen. The last flight of Noah's Ark.